might preach from up here this week. Maybe. There we go. Hey, Jared, in the top right corner of that program, top left corner, maybe top right, there's a blind mode and a freeze mode. It's probably stuck on the freeze mode. There you go. You ready for this dramatic change? Hey, there we go. Okay. Hey, I'm glad you guys are joining us. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. We don't normally have these tech problems, and that would be a lie, and I'm in the Church of God. So, Glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online, glad you guys are joining us this morning. We are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 22 is where we're going to be. If you don't, don't worry about it. We're just, we're going to look at a couple verses and I'm going to read them to you. Um, if you got it on your phone or on a tablet, uh, that's awesome as well. As, as you're getting there, I want to give you a little update. Uh, if you've been around the last couple weeks, you've heard, heard us talking about this thing called a zero campaign. The goal of our zero campaign is somewhere between six and nine months, to, six and nine years, to be able to get us to a place where we have absolutely zero facility costs as a church. Not just no mortgage payment, but no utility payments, no maintenance, no upkeep, no repair, nothing. And it's, it's pretty incredible how things are all working out and God's doing things. Um, one of those little details, if you haven't heard, is that uh, for that to happen, we uh, have to do some work on Heritage Hall, the modular buildings that are over here. We have to do about $60,000 worth of work. But if you know, we're actually only attempting to raise $30,000 more than normally comes in in November and December, right? We're trying to raise an extra $30,000 because there's a family that has never gone to this church, has never lived in this state, lives in a totally different state, and yet they're so committed to what we're doing here as a church that they're going to match dollar for dollar up to $30,000 for us to be able to do this work, to be able to have a daycare come into the Heritage Hall over here, and to be able to open a private counseling center over here um, in Heritage Hall, and that that's going to put us on a path to have zero facility costs, which is amazing. It's going to save us like $2.2 million just in the remaining life of the loan that we have on this facility, let alone um, like uh, $200,000 in utility costs in the next 10 years. I mean, just crazy stuff, crazy math. And so um, I, I'd ask you to continue to be thinking and praying about your place now as we come towards the end of the year um, and, uh, and, and contributing towards a zero campaign so we can raise the money and, uh, and, and be able to do some awesome things. So here we go. Matthew 22, we're actually going to be in verse 15 is where we're going to start. Before we do, I just have to tell you, early this week, um, I was talking with a, a lot of people about this passage, and I talked with more people about this passage than normal because I didn't want to preach it. Um, there's a reason that most of the time we do verse by verse um, teaching. It's because it requires me to cover passages that I would not choose to cover. And this would be one of them. Um, but as, as I spent more time with it this week, um, I'm actually really excited. Because I think that God has some really important things to say to us in this passage. And so if you hear me say something that makes you uncomfortable, like, let's just try and be humble enough to see if maybe it's because God's trying to tell us something uncomfortable this morning. Okay, here, let me read it to you. It says this, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him, being Jesus, in what he said. And they, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, 
We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, here's the thing. That question that they just asked, is it lawful to give a poll tax, doesn't seem very tenuous to us, does it? Did anybody just get nervous when they asked that question? And make it real uncomfortable, like, oh, I don't know what the answer's going to be, right? But to understand the incredible amount of tension, it's, it's questions and Jesus' answer to things like this that ultimately leave all, lead all of the authorities, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, to want to kill Jesus. To understand just the depth of the tension and the complicated nature of this question, you've got to l- understand a little bit about Jewish culture and Jewish history. Uh, so for most of Jewish history, for most of their, their, maybe not most, but the way God intended, the way they envisioned themselves as a nation, um, you had two authorities. This is why I have a whiteboard because I think it'll be helpful for us to visualize these things. You had two authorities, okay? You had God, okay, who, who gave them the law, brought them out of Egypt, and then, for, for much of Israel's existence as an independent nation, you had an, another group. You had the king, okay, or the government. Now, for a lot of Israel's existence, these two things coexisted. When, when Israelites thought of their king, when they thought of King David, it's one of the reasons that there's such anticipation and hope that Jesus would be the new King David, that Jesus would bring back the kingdom in this physical kingdom with a throne and with dominion and a government. That's why the disciples ask Jesus if they can sit at his right hand, if they can be a part of his government. Because for much of Israel's, at least for their envisioning of what they've been and what they wanted to be, um, they were basically a theocracy masquerading as a monarchy. A theocracy being a government whose ultimate top of the government is God, but they had a king. And so this is what it meant. This is the implication. And this seems a little foreign to us, but this is the implication, is that if the king asked you to do something, you did it in submission and as an act of worship to God because they were one and the same. Now, they weren't one and the same, but their authority was one and the same. When, when you would pay a tax... You, you would pay a tax to your government, but it would be an act of worship. It would not be an act of civil duty that you pay your taxes. It would be an act of submission and praise that God is good and that he rules over all of us and he's given us this land. And it would be an act of worship. When, when the king asked you to go to war... You would be willing to give yourself, to give your life for your nation, for your kingdom, as an act of worship to your God. God and government were intertwined as one. Now, now here's the tension that's arisen for a lot of Israel's history, is what happens when the government that rules over you is not a government who sits in submission to God. What happens when the government, as we see in Jesus' life right here, when that government is a pagan government that has their own gods, has their own religion, has their own worship, and has their own sacrifices? What do you do in that moment? 
Not only all the history and the anticipation and the culture and, and this, 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 this constant rhetoric of the kingdom of heaven coming, the kingdom of God, they're all envisioning this restored thing here, God and government together as one. Not, not only that, but then you just got to think of the tension of the moment of the people who Jesus is talking to. Look back at what it says of the people that Jesus is talking to. Um, it says this. The Pharisees, um, they, verse 16, they sent their disciples, right? They sent disciples and Herodians, okay? So uh, um, I need you to see a little um, kind of line here, okay? So you got the Herodians. We actually don't know a lot about the Herodians. Um, we know they're big fans of Herod, right? Um, and then you have the Pharisees. And we know a lot about the Pharisees. We talk about the Pharisees a lot in church, right? But, but that's not the only people that were there that day. Um, the Roman military was there. And the Roman military was there big. I mean, they were, whoo-hoo. They, they were there always because if you know about ancient Near Eastern history, first century, um, Israel was a little bit of a problem child for Rome, right? And so they always had military there. But this was the high holiday. This was a high holy holiday for Israel. And if you know anything about religion and history and people and governments, anytime you mix um, nationalism with, with a really important religious holiday, it's just like fodder for rebellion, Right? And so when it would come to this season, this week of Passover, the Roman military would descend in force. They, they wanted the Jews to see everywhere, to see soldiers, to remember, hey, you look at us sideways and we will stomp you out like a bug. Right? So you got the Roman military. In fact, in fact, as Jesus would teach in the temple, here's a crazy thing. As Jesus would teach in the temple, um, the Roman government built a barrack, built a tower to house um, and to equip Roman soldiers just on the west side of the temple. So in the afternoon, as the sun would begin to set, Jesus would be teaching under a literal shadow of the Roman military. Their military barracks would cast a shadow over the temple so there'd be a physical reminder, a symbol to the people of Israel always that this Roman power governed over them, stood over them. But, but not only, that's not only who you'd see. Um, a little bit later, we'll see the Sadducees, right? I think there's two Ds. Um, we got the Pharisees. The, the Herodians were a political party. They were like all for Roman government, but they weren't to this point where they'd give their lives, they'd give themselves. Um, they, they saw the political advantage of being for Rome. The, the interesting thing is that the, the Roman military had this same view of God and government that the Jews did. It, they just had a different God there. In fact, later, um, Jesus is going to take some coinage and he's going to ask him um, some questions about the coinage. The coinage would have likely bared this phrase, Caesar, the son of God. You see the conflict there? You see, for the Roman military that was there, they saw, they saw their service to their government as an act of worship to their God. Now, the Caesar at the time, was, or the king at the time, wasn't um, actually a god, yet he was kind of like half god. He didn't be, actually become a full god until he died. I don't know how that works in the evolution of gods, but you could ask a Roman later, okay? Um, but, 
they had the same text. They saw their government and their religion as one and the same. The Herodians saw the same thing. The Sadducees, uh, they were like the most liberal uh, uh, Jewish sect, but they were actually probably pretty mainline, and they just recognized like the Roman power and the Roman government is so big and strong that there's just nothing you can do about them. You, do, you just got to do what you got to do to get along, right? And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the party of the people. They were the most popular group, and they despised the Romans. They weren't quite willing to, like, go against them, but they did everything they could to kind of undercut them and just poke at them and just be a nuisance and be a problem. And, 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 and so that's the Pharisees. And then you actually have one more group that's in the crowd. We know at least one person's there. And they're called the zealots. We, we get an English word because of these people, right? For you to be zealous comes from these people. Now, now these people showed up um, a couple decades before this moment's going on, and these people were so offended at pagan governments ruling over them that they would, they would do anything. They would give their life to fight against. And, and in fact, in 86, this poll tax that we're talking about, in year six, this poll tax shows up and these people run a revolt to try and kill every single one of these people and run them out. They saw any obedience or allegiance or tax given to a pagan government as idolatry and rebellion and abandonment of God. Like, like these people are intense. Okay? And this is all the people that are just in the temple area. But, but, but not just that. Think about the people that Jesus is taking with him. His disciples. You know the disciples? You, you might know one of them. Here, here. Um, you know this guy? Simon the Zealot. You know that disciple? <laughs> Remember what these people do? They kill these people? Simon the zealot, Jesus is posed with this question of, is it lawful? Is it lawful to give a poll tax? We're going to talk in a minute about what exactly that was, but is it lawful to give a poll tax? And this guy sees any taxation as, as idolatry and an abandonment of the people of God. But not just Simon, who sits all the way over on that. And um, th this guy, Matthew, Matthew, right? Do, do you remember... Um, Anybody remember what Matthew's job is before he met Jesus? Matthew the tax collector. Think those are some awkward evenings with Simon and Maddie over here? Sitting in a dark court. Like, I'm pretty sure that Matthew would not want to be alone in a dark alley with Simon. No matter what Jesus has done in his heart, Simon had committed himself to killing these people, Right? And it was so tenuous. It was so um, hot a question because the poll tax is a different kind of tax. There were a lot of taxes they had. Um, uh, they, they would have taxes at ports. If you wanted to use a port, you would have to pay a percentage tax on the freight that you brought through the port. We'd, we'd call that like a sales tax, right? They, they would have taxes. If you wanted to travel on certain roads, we'd call that a toll, right? You'd have, you had to pay the taxes. And you had to pay these taxes for different services. But the poll tax was different. The poll tax was actually not a tax that everyone was required to pay. In fact, a little interesting thing, Jesus actually wasn't responsible to pay the poll tax. Because the poll tax was only for those who were from Judea. 
from Jerusalem, and Jesus was from up north, from Judea. The poll tax was different. The poll tax we might call a tribute. A poll tax was enacted on a people that were a problem, and the government wanted to make sure to remind them who was in charge. And so they would pay a tax, and it wasn't for goods and services. It was intended to be a humiliating act of submission. The tax, this is, this is what you got to exchange for the tax, right? You pay your tax, and, and the governing authority over you would say, if you pay the tax, here's what you get. I won't murder you. How about you pay me, and then I won't crush you like the ant that you are, right? That, that's what they got, was, was it was every time they had to pay the poll tax, it was a reminder of the sovereign power of the oppressor that was over them. You can see why this was such a tenuous issue for the Jews, to give a, a tribute, to give a, an offering to a king in submission to his sovereign authority over you. But Jesus, um, Jesus is a genius. Did you know this? Like G Jesus is just like brilliant. So, so look at what Jesus says to them. Um, Skip to verse 20. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. So, um, how, how many of you have a translation and you're sitting in the room and you have a translation, just raise your hand, that says render, that says just the way I said it, render to Caesar, okay, um, probably half a dozen of you. How many of you have, and it says just the word give, it says give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Anybody have a translation that says that, okay, okay. Don't, don't be ashamed to raise your hand, you're not the one who wrote the translation, okay. Um, how many of you have a translation that says give back to Caesar, Okay, uh, just a few of us. Um, the, the word there is, is apagote. I'm going to write it up here because um, somebody will think it's interesting. And for that one person, um, which by the way, um, this is not the pi symbol. If, in Greek, it's actually P, the P symbol. Anyways, there you go. You learned something today. Um, apagote looks like this. Okay, um, here's the thing. It doesn't mean give in the way we think about it. Because when you give something, you give it voluntarily as a gift, right? I mean, we're coming towards Christmas, and we're all going to talk about the gifts we're going to give. We're going to give people gifts. We're going to give people, and it's all voluntary and willful, and it's, it's kind of out of the generosity and the kindness of our heart. Here's the problem. This word here, apodote, it doesn't mean that. In fact, it's the same word throughout the Old Testament when God talks about the tithe. If you were here this summer, um, Robert Morris was speaking, and, and he, he made this comment. He said, um, you can't give a tithe. You can't give a tithe. The Bible never gives you that language, gives you that opportunity. Here's what it actually always says. It says you can apodote, a tithe. 
You can give back. The, the, this word here is, is an obligation of debt incurred. That's not a gift, is it? You don't make it a gift. You can make gifts. That's different. But that's not what this is. This is a debt that you owe. This is giving back to someone what was already theirs. When you take out a loan and you make payments, you're not gifting the bank money, right? You're not like, hey, today I was feeling really generous, so I wrote my mortgage payment. They're like, no, you owe, you're giving us the money we are owed back, giving back, this word Jesus says, I think giving back is a great translation, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give back to God what is God's. So Jesus does this really crazy, mind-blowing thing that's not going to seem that mind-blowing to us, but just be patient with me. You'll see where it really rubs us, okay? Jesus says this. Jesus says that there is a way, there is a way to give to the government, to be in submission to the authority of the government and in submission to Jesus and in submission to God. Now, now this doesn't seem that controversial or surprising to us because we've had this conversation about separation of church and government. We understand that you can, you can love Jesus and be fully devoted to Jesus and stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? We understand that there is a way and a space that you can be fully committed to following God and still be obedient and submission in submission to the governing authorities. Now, I'm going to add a circle because um, in like two weeks, we're going to talk about it and it's going to be important for the circle. But a um, little bit later, they're going to ask him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus is going to say, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And he's going to say, the second is like it, which literally means the second has the same nature. It is the same thing. It's to do the same thing right? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus is saying is that there is a way to fully devote yourself to God and to give yourself to others. Now, there's a place and there's a space where others have demands on you that are not in submission to God. There are things in your life that others, coworkers, employers, community, culture, neighbors, spouses may ask of you that are outside the bounds of being in submission to God. There are things that a government may ask of you that are outside the bounds of being in submission to God. But there is a way to be in submission to the sovereign king of all of creation and be in submission and obedience to the government. There is a way for these things to, to happen. And even, even like here where like God and government and others all ask us the same thing for all those things to come into alignment. Now for us, I think the tension is here is that um, especially over the last year and a half, but I mean for all of our institution as a nation, we have had huge arguments about where this line is. What does it look like to be in submission to God and be obedient in submission to our government? And where's that line? For, for all of the history of the church, we've wrestled with this question. Like, how do we love and show kindness and grace and mercy? Here, here let, me, let me tell you a little secret. Um, uh, I have neighbors, shh, that I don't like. Do you know that? You do too, don't you? Right? Be honest. We're in church. Even if you're not in church, you're watching church. Be honest, right? 
But there's a thing that God calls me to and wrestling with like, where's this line and how I honor them and serve them and love them in obedience to God as an act of worship, to be in submission to the governing authorities. The scripture says God's placed over me. How do I do that as an act of worship? Where's that line? We've spent so much of our time this last year and a half or two years wrestling with, arguing, being hateful towards one another about where this line is. But Jesus, um, Jesus is a genius. Did I mention that before? Jesus is genius. And I think actually Jesus's answer to our question is in the question he asks. So, so look at this. Look again. Look again at Matthew 22, if you've got it in front of you. Verse 20. He says this. This is the question he asks. When he takes one of the coin, one of the denarius, he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness and inscription is this. It's a great translation. Likeness, it fits, it's good. Here's the thing. That word, when it's in the Old Testament, um, one of the first places we see that word is, is in Genesis. It says this, that he made them in his own image, in his likeness. So what is it that's owed to God? And what is it that's owed to government? The things that bear their likeness. The, the second word that Jesus uses is, is this word, um, inscriptions. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's the word of the written word, things written on things. There's another spot. You've probably heard this verse somewhere, probably out of context, but I'm going to read it for you, and I love it. It says this, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Here it is, but you ready? But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will, on their hearts, I will write it. On their hearts, I will inscribe it. On their hearts, I will etch it. See, Jesus doesn't just say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's. There is a rightful place for government, and there's a rightful place for us to give what is theirs. The things that bear their image, the things that bear their words, the things, there are things that we are owed to them. But the tension, the greatest tension, I think, for us Let me say it this way. Um, for me, here, here's the wrestling I have. Can I just be honest with you just for a moment? Um, be honest with you. It's probably not your problem. You're all better Christians than me. But here we go, okay? Here's my temptation. A lot of times, I think there's a fourth circle. A lot of times, I live my life like there are things that are owed to God and I can use a part of what I have to give back to God. I can give some time, give some money. I can be gracious to someone I don't like. I can, I can, I can give back to God. I, I can give to my neighbors and help them out even if I don't want to. And I can take some of my time, take some of my precious weekend or an evening and I can help out a neighbor or a coworker or a friend. I, 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 can, I can be obedient. I can, be, I can take out of some of my abundance and, you know, 
pay as little taxes as I'm legally required to, but pay my taxes, and I can be obedient and in submission, but the rest of it's for me. And I can give back just a portion to God. Here's the problem. You, you remember um, in, in the same day, in the same conversation, Jesus tells us a parable. It's one of the first parables he says on this day. He tells us a parable about a vineyard. If you're here a couple weeks ago, you may remember this. And he tells this story about a vineyard. And here's the point of the story. God owns the vineyard and everything in it and everything that comes from it. That you have done nothing. You've earned nothing. You've created nothing. All you've done has been a steward of the things God's entrusted you. Until we recognize that there is nothing in our lives that does not sit inside this circle, that there is nothing in us that does not bear his name, that he is owed back. <laughs> we'll never get this line right. We'll never get this line right. Until we recognize that as an act of worship, he is owed back all of us. I was thinking this week, it's kind of embarrassing that the Roman military often had a better understanding of worship than we do today. See, for a lot of us, what it means to worship and what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to give back a little bit of time, a little bit of money, a little corner of our life. It says this, Romans 12, to offer your bodies, to offer yourselves, to offer the things that bear his image and his words are ascribed onto Offer yourself, your whole self, as a living sacrifice. It's a little embarrassing sometimes that the Roman military 2,000 years ago understood what it meant to worship with their whole bodies maybe better than we often do. The question for us shouldn't be, where is this line? Or where is this line? Because until the whole of us is given as an act of worship to our God, we'll never get these lines right. This question this morning, the invitation to you this morning is to set aside the bitterness, the anger, the arrogance, the frustration with others, the questions here, and instead to give yourself fully to our God, to honor him with everything that we are, with every breath, with every step, with every dollar, with every minute. For that, scripture says, is our true and right act of worship.